Good morning. My name is Pam. The Old Testament reading is found in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. These are the words of Nehemiah, Hakaliah's son. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the fortress city of Susa, Anani, one of my brothers, came with some other men from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had escaped and survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They told me, those in the province who survived the captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall around Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this news, I sat down and wept. I mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Colleen. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. Even though my letter hurt you, I don't regret it. Well, I did regret it just a bit because I see that that letter made you sad, though only for a short time. Now I'm glad, not because you were sad, but because you were made sad enough to change your hearts and lives. You felt godly sadness so that no one was harmed by us in any way. Godly sadness produces a changed heart and life that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. But sorrow under the influence of the world produces death. The word of the Lord. Morning. My name's Eric. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. Jesus raised his eyes to his disciples and said, Happy are you who are poor because God's kingdom is yours. Happy are you who hunger now, because you will be satisfied. Happy are you who weep now, because you will laugh. The Gospel of the Lord. Would you please remain standing with me as we pray this morning. Father, we pray today that you would speak to us through your word. That we might, in hearing and reading and reflecting on your word, see your son. And that we might encounter the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit who wants to change us and transform us into the image and likeness of Jesus. That when we go from here into our homes and our apartments and our classrooms and our workplaces and our neighborhoods, we might actually bear witness to the resurrected King. So meet us in this moment. In your name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning, New Life Downtown. Those of you who are here, those of you who are watching online this morning or who are going to be watching uh, later on this week. My earliest memory as a child is a memory of a disappointment. It was a memory of a loss. I was three and a half years old. It was April of 1982. It was the day my parents brought my little brother home from the hospital after he was born. He was actually not the disappointment. (laughs) You know how it happens in the midst of those moments as life is kind of changing that one of the things we often do is try to find ways to help the younger kids in the house adjust. And so somebody, I don't know who, gave me a dart gun. 
And I was so excited about this dart gun. I went down in our basement. It came with a little target. And so I set it up and put the darts in and began shooting the gun around. And at some point in the middle of that, I lost at least one dart. I don't remember how many I actually lost, but I just remember this sense of loss, of disappointment that I had gotten this gift and now I couldn't find a dart and I was upset and I was sad. And I remember going upstairs to tell some folks about it. I don't remember this part, but my mom says that at some point in the middle that she or someone else says, well, don't you want to see your younger brother? And I said, I've already seen it. (laughs) And went back downstairs to look for my darts. (laughs) Now, All I really remember about the day personally, though, is losing a dart or darts. The disappointment that I felt in the loss was greater than the joy of my brother coming home. The disappointment was actually even greater than the gift of having received the dart gun in the first place. And even to this day, the disappointment is probably greater than the fact that those darts were probably found. And I only played for it for a day or two. And I'm sure I moved on to another toy at that point. But in his collection of essays, David White writes this. He says, disappointment is inescapable. But then he goes on and says something that I really wrestle with. He says, it's inescapable but necessary. A misunderstood mercy. And when approached properly, an agency for transformation and the hidden underground engine of trust and generosity in a human life. The attempt to create a life devoid of disappointments is the attempt to avoid the vulnerabilities that make the conversations of life real and moving and lifelike. It is the attempt to avoid our own necessary and merciful heartbreak. I'm not sure if I can go all the way with David to say that, that heartbreak, that disappointment is necessary But it is easy to say that it is inescapable, that it is a universality to the human experience, that we all experience heartbreak. We have all been let down. We have all suffered loss. We have all been told no in a way that brought us to tears. We've all had our hearts broken. We've all received bad news at some point in our life. Sometimes that is just a disappointment that we experience with others. They they let us down. They disappointed us in some way. Sometimes that disappointment is actually something we feel about ourselves. That we're disappointed with what happened, with what we did, with how we responded, with how we performed, with what we said. Other times we're disappointed with groups of people. Sometimes we're disappointed with the church. And often, if we're honest, we find ourselves disappointed with God. And living and feeling a kind of disappointment that changes our life in some way. There are some disappointments that are sort of light and momentary. They lightly and momentarily touch down on the surface of our soul. Like that one time that Chick-fil-A messed up my drive through order. Happened once. <laughs> That's it. Otherwise, it's just always the same. They deliver time and time again, but they can have those disappointments that are just like, oh, they forgot to add the extra pickles. But other times the disappointment cuts deep. And it lingers. Some of our disappointments, if we're honest, remain for a lifetime. They are with us every day. It's the kind of disappointment that comes with a great loss, with the death of a loved one, with the abandonment we might feel from a parent or from a spouse. 
or the kind of betrayal that comes sometimes in friendship or the unkindness that we experience from a boss or for a coworker, or a customer or a teacher or a classmate or sometimes even just a stranger. And the question I want to raise for us today is what do we do with that kind of heartbreak? What do we as the people of God do with disappointment? How do we deal with the disappointment that ends up happening in the course of our lives. We're going to spend the next eight weeks talking through the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah begins with a great disappointment. And to give us a little bit of context for where Nehemiah falls in the Old Testament story, Nehemiah is picking up toward the end of the greatest collective heartbreak in the Old Testament. So it's referred to by scholars as the Babylonian exile. And so if you bear with me for a second, we'll do a little bit of Old Testament history. Some of you remember kind of picking up from Egypt, the people of God being rescued out of Egypt, taken through the Dead Sea. They wander in the wilderness. They eventually make it into the land. There's that time where there's a little bit of craziness in the book of Judges. And then we eventually establish a kingdom. And there is a period of time where there is a united kingdom in the land led by Saul and then David and then his son Solomon. But eventually that kingdom breaks apart. After just three short generations, it splits into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And 200 years into that reality, the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians, this empire coming out of the east. In 722 BC, they destroy Samaria, its capital, exile its people all over the land. And those tribes that were part of that kingdom are lost from the pages of history. But hope remains for the people of God because David's dynasty is alive and well in the southern kingdom of Judah and in the capital city of Jerusalem. And for a little while that remains, but in 587, the southern kingdom falls to Babylon. The city of Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. A significant portion of the population is carried off into Babylon, into exile, and for 70 years, their home lay in ruins, their city destroyed, their temple knocked over. And according to the psalmist, this is what it was like for the people of God at that time. Alongside Babylon's streams, there we sat down, crying, because we remembered Zion, we remembered Jerusalem, we remembered the temple, we remember what life used to be like. We remembered our home and our family and our farms and our stores and our way of life. We remembered gathering together and singing and coming to celebrate all of the goodness of God. We remembered Zion, but in that moment, we hung our lyres up in the trees there because that's where our captors asked us to sing. Our tormentors requested the songs of joy. Sing us a song about Zion, they said. But how could we possibly sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? How could we possibly sing the Lord's song in the midst of disappointment? How can we sing the Lord's song in exile? How can we sing the Lord's song when everything that we love and hold dear is destroyed? How can we sing the Lord's song when our homes lie in ruin? How can we sing the Lord's song there? And if we're honest, this is one of those psalms that's really easy for us to identify with. We've had moments in our life when a disappointment hit us in such a way, a loss hit us in a way, a, a grief gripped us in such a way 
that we came to church and we couldn't even sing. Like, how? How can I sing the Lord's song in the midst of this? Some of you maybe found that this morning as you were walking in today. It took an incredible amount of courage and strength even to come. And as the band's singing, you're looking around, seeing people raise their hands and you're asking yourself the question, how can I sing the Lord's song in the midst of what I'm feeling right now? This was the people's life for 70 years. And then slowly, things begin to change for them. In October 539, there's another empire that rises up, the Babylonians under Cyrus the Great. And they come, or sorry, the Persians, and they take out the Babylonians. And the next year, Cyrus decides to send everybody back home. He decrees that God's people should go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple the book of Ezra, if you've ever read that before, picks up the story with folks like Sheshbazzar and Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now, I have a question. We have child dedications here, and there's been a few Joshuas. No Sheshbazzars or Zerubbabels uh, so far. So I'm just waiting for that moment that I get to introduce you to Sheshbazzar, son of John and Molly. Right, like it was, we got to have that moment at some point. Maybe a good Zerubbabel somewhere in here. Maybe just a middle name at some point. Jen Wilson, our worship leader, maybe, as you're thinking about names. Shesbazar, Zerubbabel, maybe that could happen. But it's a little over 20 years later, after that announcement, that the altar is rebuilt, the temple is rededicated. But things are still not right. Things are still in disarray. Things are still disappointment that lingers. It's another 60 years and Ezra himself comes on the scene to restore the reading of the scripture and the way of the life of the Torah in the midst of the community. And it's another 15 years, 446 BC, nearly 170 years after the initial destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that we read the story of Nehemiah, that we pick up now on Nehemiah and his role in this ongoing work of restoration, the restoration of God. And so Nehemiah chapter one, verse one says this, says, these are the words of Nehemiah, Hakaliah's son, in the month of Kislev. Kislev would have been like November, December for us, that kind of time period. In the 20th year, he's referring to the 20th year of King Artaxerxes I. His friends just called him Atax uh, for short. So it's the 20th year, while I'm in the fortress in the fortress city in Susa, the Bab, or the, sorry, the Persian kings, they would go to Susa in the winter. This is sort of like them going to Phoenix uh, to sort of hang out for a season. This was their capital city during that time. And Nehemiah's there, and Hanai, one of my brothers, came with some of the other men from Judah, from Judah and I asked him, how are things going? How are things back home? How are people? How is our city? How is our temple I asked them about the Jews who'd escaped, who'd survived the captivity, and about the place that I love, and they told me this. Those in the province who survived the captivity are in great trouble and shame. For the wall around Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And when I heard this news, when I received that bad report... When the disappointment came near, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When I got the bad news, 
when the disappointment came close, I sat down, I wept, I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed. Nehemiah here in this moment, his heart breaks for something. His heart breaks for what's happening with something that he loves and the people he loves. His heart's breaking though for something that's happening a thousand miles away from him. But then the report comes and this is what he does. He sits down and he weeps and he fasts and he prays. Nehemiah does four things that I want to point out to us this morning that I think can be a guide for us when disappointment comes near to our own hearts. That when we are dealing with disappointment, when we're dealing with loss, when we're dealing with grief, what do we do as the people of God in those seasons? And here's the first thing we learn from Nehemiah. We learn to sit for a season. The first thing that Nehemiah does is that he sits down and he weeps and he mourns for days. We'll see actually in the next chapter that those days will turn into weeks and those weeks will actually turn into months. It's not until March or April that he ends up speaking to King Artie. It's several months later that he is sitting down. Our tendency in the midst of our disappointment is not to stop or to slow down or to sit or to gain any perspective. Our response is to be, we have to do something. And if it's someone that's disappointed, what we'll do is we'll just try to get back at them in some way. We'll be harsh. We'll be short. We will in some way sort of cut back at them the way that they have cut us. We'll have some sort of uh, immediate sometimes erratic or disproportionate response to what it is that's happened. Or we'll just pretend like that person doesn't exist. We'll take the disappointment and we'll build a wall and we'll go on as if that human is no longer a part of our lives anymore. They're simply part of the fabric of the past. We'll act impulsively or disproportionately. But Nehemiah here in this moment, he sits down, catches his breath, He does the thing that we tell kids to do all the time when they're upset. Count to 10. (laughs) Just take a moment and pause and gain some perspective. For him, he does it for days that turn into weeks, turns into months. He does it for a season. The question, of course, for us is when we're experiencing that kind of those moments in our life, how long do we sit for? How long do we sit in these moments? And then, of course, it's just a matter of discernment. It's something that really depends on what the disappointment is and how it is that it has impacted us in that Chick-fil-A disappointment. I just needed to sit down long enough to make sure I didn't take it out on the teenager that forgot the honey mustard. It's not that big of a deal. I just needed to catch my breath enough in order to be kind to another person who had nothing to do with the problem. I just wish everyone would at a certain point in a restaurant. Sometimes it doesn't take very long, but the deep things, the hard things, just take time. Take some moments to sit and that season can be long. Of course, there's always a danger in that though. There's a danger for us in the midst of our disappointment or our grief or our heartache for a season to become a habit and for a habit to become a life. And we end up saying that whatever has happened to us is actually going to become the thing that determines how we live the rest of our days. That that disappointment, that heartache, that grief, that loss, all of a sudden has caused us to close in in such a way that we never actually stand back up again. That we simply sit and that becomes a habit, becomes a life. But more often than not, the first thing that we do is we do something other than sit. Nehemiah encourages just to sit down. 
Maybe this morning you're here today and you've experienced a recent loss, something that feels fresh. Or maybe you're in the middle of a deep cut, a deep wound. I just want to hear you. I want you to hear this morning. It is okay to sit for a season. It is okay to rest. It is okay to stop and to gain some perspective. Maybe today you're dealing with some fresh church hurt. You've been disappointed by God or by his people in some way. And maybe that actually even led you here this morning. And it took a whole lot for you even to come and try another church community. And you hear us talking about volunteering for teams. And next week you'll hear us about getting involved in meal groups. You're going, I'm just not ready. It's okay. Sometimes you just need to sit for a moment and let the Lord heal you in the presence of his spirit and his people. It's okay. Nehemiah teaches us to sit for a season. The second thing he teaches us to do is to turn toward our disappointment. Nehemiah faces it. He looks it right in the eye and he weeps and he mourns. He doesn't pretend that it didn't happen and he doesn't sort of pretend like it will go away. Nehemiah feels all the feels. He lets them all in. Some of us grew up in houses where we were just taught to suppress our emotions it's like our parents were Tom Hanks on League of Their Own. It's like, there's no crying. There's no crying in this house. You can't do that here. We just taught like, okay, don't say that. Others of us grew up in faith traditions that didn't allow us to feel emotions. It's always like, don't confess that. Don't own that. Don't confess that you're sad or you're disappointed or lost. Instead, confess that the Lord is going to return it to you a hundredfold. Like, but I'm sad right now. The scriptures are filled with people sitting and weeping and mourning and allowing those emotions to be present to us. Emotions for us are like the dashboards on our vehicles. They light up trying to tell us that something's wrong. Things are not normal. And you don't just ignore the dashboards on your vehicle. You shouldn't anyway. If you are ignoring them, please take your car to a mechanic. Start paying attention to those things when it happens. We're called to pay attention, to look at them, to actually experience the feelings, and then to begin to ask questions. What, what are these emotions telling me about me? What are they telling me about what happened? What are they telling me about this thing that I've experienced? What are they telling me about the person? What are they telling me about God in the middle of it? This is why Christians throughout the years have taken time to journal or to do a daily exam and to ask questions and invite God into processing. It's why we encourage people to go and see counselors and spiritual directors or to talk to mentors, to talk to close friends and to say, I need to process some things. I need to feel these emotions. I need to share them with someone and I need to ask some questions and become curious about what's going on. Of course, there's even a danger for us in that because we have to be discerning about who we talk to and how we talk about the situation. Because usually the disappointment we feel is from someone who's also in our community. And so our tendency will be to take that disappointment we feel and then talk to everybody who also has relationship with them about the disappointment to see, do they feel the same way? And all of a sudden we've sort of built up something that this person has no clue about. Maybe they just forgot. Maybe they didn't realize that they said or did something that, that hurts in some way. So we stop, we sit for a season, we feel it, but we'd be careful about what's going to happen because maybe we end up working things out here. And now 12 other people feel something that they didn't feel before. We have to be wise about who we talk to. 
Third thing that we see about Nehemiah is that he not only turns toward the disappointment, but more importantly, he turns toward God. He fasts and he prays. He fasts. It's this idea of giving something up. In Nehemiah's case, he gives up some meals. He gives up some food. We're not told how long of those days or weeks that he does that, but he gives up meals for a while. This is not a a form of self-harm or self-punishment in some way. What fasting is for the people of God, it's a way of embodying the reality that our need for God is bigger than any other need we have. It's a way of just simply saying, I know I desire or crave and need food in this moment, but I am going to say no to that as a way of embodying the fact that more than food, more than any of these things, I actually need God to show up. I need God to show up in the middle of this disappointment. It's a way of even taking those words of Jesus who says that those who hunger now will be satisfied and saying, okay, I do hunger now, but I'm trusting the God who satisfies Trust in the God of justice, the God of righteousness, the God who sees me and cares for me, is with me. I trust him in the middle of this. What happens for us, though, is that instead of giving something up in the midst of our disappointment, we pick up bad habits, right? We tend to overwork or oversleep or binge watch. For me, it's those legal and political dramas on Netflix, but they're just right there. And then that bag of jalapeno Cheetos, Anybody had those? They're dangerous. Or if there's some peanut butter M&Ms, Diet Dr. Pepper, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I found something to comfort me in the midst of my sadness. I'm not saying don't treat yourself, okay? There are moments where we need to be reminded that there are still good and joyful things in the midst of life, but nine nights of Cheetos may be a bit much, right? gives something up to embody his need for God. The second thing that he does is he prays. He talks to God. Our tendency in the midst of our disappointment is to stop praying, to stop reading, to stop singing, to stop gathering together with the people of God. It's actually easy to transfer whatever disappointments we experience in life immediately to God. Say, God did this. God let this happen. God did not prevent this and to sort of push that to him. Or it's easy to turn our disappointments with ourselves into shame and to say, well, because of this, I can't turn to God. I need to take care of this. I need to fix this. I need to do something about this. And then once, once I have it all cleaned up, then I can turn back to God. This is my tendency in the middle of things is that when I experience disappointment or heartbreak, I internalize I just go in and think, if I just think about this long enough, if I just sit with this long enough, I'll be able to unravel it and figure it out and solve the problem and have an understanding of what went on. And what I realized, though, is that I can't actually untie those things without the Spirit of God coming and meeting me in the midst of that. And it's turning toward God in prayer silence and solitude and reading the scriptures and singing songs of praise that suddenly all of a sudden the knots of my internalized angst begin to loosen just a bit. Nehemiah turns to God in fasting and in prayer. Of course, for us, this is not supposed to be something that we just do in disappointments. That we only fast and pray when bad things happen to us, when we experience losses in life. No, the people of God, our lives are supposed to be marked by a rhythm of fasting and praying. Then we're always in conversation with God. 
And that in different moments or different seasons or different rhythms, we're giving things up to remind ourselves, okay, I'm going to stop watching TV for this week just so that I can spend more time in prayer. I'm going to give this up just for a moment. I'm going to give up some chocolate right now or some coffee because I just want to remind myself that I need God and desire God more than these things. I want God to grab my heart in some new ways. So I want to invite you this fall to consider what would a rhythm of fasting and praying look like for you? What would it look like to get into a new rhythm as the school year starts of fasting and praying? One of the things that we're going to do as a congregation beginning on Monday, September 12th, is we're going to gather at the commons on Monday from 12 to 1. So over the lunch hour for a time of noon prayer. And if you live or work downtown or able to come down during that time, maybe what you can do is just fast lunch with us and join together the people God, and we'll pray for an hour, pray for our city, pray for our congregation, pray for one another, and ask the Lord to meet us in the midst of this season that we find ourselves in. What does it look like for us to fast and to pray? But notice what he prays here. Nehemiah's prayer in, one, in chapter one is beautiful. Read the whole thing when you get a chance. But Nehemiah 1.6 says this, I confess the sins of the people of Israel, which we have committed against you, both I and my family have sinned. We have wronged you greatly. We haven't kept the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. In the midst of his prayer, he does the fascinating thing. He confesses his own sin, and he repents. And he repents not just for his sin, but for his family's sin, and for all of Israel's sin. And as Western individualists, we have to be honest that this sort of like communal confession for other people's sin makes us a bit uncomfortable. We're like, well, wait a minute. They should be the one confessing and repenting. Yes. And the Bible's filled with all these corporate prayers of confessing on behalf of the people that we are part of. Nehemiah wasn't alive 170 years before that when everything was going wrong in Judah. He wasn't the one that destroyed the temple and broke down the city walls. That wasn't him. He lives a thousand miles away. He's not the one that seems to be okay with things being the way they are back in the land. All that's true. And he names it. We can name that. Those things need to be named. But what Nehemiah realizes is that Nehemiah can't do anything about that. He can't do anything about what happened 170 years ago. He can't do anything about the Babylonians. He can't do anything about other people in the middle of this. Instead, he starts to think about what can he do? What will he do? What is his own part in this? This is Nehemiah's fourth invitation is for us to own our own parts, to own our own part of the situation and our own parts of the solution. Now we have to be careful here because we are not always part of the cause of the problem. There are evil things that happen in the world. There are evil people who do evil things. There are things that have happened in some of our lives that we just need to be reminded of this morning that those things were not your fault. What happened to you is not your fault. But there are other times when we experience disappointment and loss, particularly disappointment with others, that if we stop for a moment and we reflect, we can realize that maybe the problem was with our expectations. And maybe all of a sudden we felt disappointed in a relationship with someone. And what that disappointment showed us is that we had unconscious expectations of that person. 
something that we never expressed to them and something that they had never agreed to with us. But we didn't know we had it until we felt disappointed. And so now our part in it is to say, okay, I had an expectation that wasn't met and I need to go and talk to that person and say, I I had this expectation, it wasn't met. And they get a chance to apologize. And then you get a chance to say, is that a realistic expectation for that person? Or is there something else that we can talk through in relationships? Our Emotionally Healthy Relationships course, which is starting this September, has all kinds of tools to help us do this. To name, what's my part in this situation? What are my, what's my need? What are my feelings? Help us to explore What is this telling me about me? To ask questions like, what am I willing and not willing to do about the situation? What am I willing and not willing to do with my disappointment? What can I do to improve the situation? I think this is what Paul's getting at in that moment in that letter to the second Corinthians where he kind of apologizes for his letter and then takes it back and apologizes again. And he's like, I kind of regret it, but, but not. And he goes back and forth. And then he says this, he says, at the end of the day, it's godly sadness that produces a changed heart in life that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. It's a kind of way of saying, man, in the midst of this disappointment, something changed. God showed up in some way. And for Nehemiah in this book, we see that this is the moment that changes Nehemiah's life. He's going about his days and then this disappointment reaches him and he turns toward God in prayer. And as this book continues, we see that he actually owns his part and becomes the person who actually goes back to Jerusalem and leads the people in rebuilding the walls. The walls that he did not tear down. He helps to rebuild. His heart breaks and he leans into it. And he leans into God and he realizes that he's willing to do something about it, that he is able to do something about it. Many of you have had similar moments in your life where there was something that you heard about the nations of the world and it it broke your heart. And it changed something about you. Are you got into a relationship with someone who's unhoused and realized that you wanted to be a part of housing solutions in our city. Or you experienced some injustice or someone you love experienced an injustice. And you said, actually, I want to give my life to eradicating those things in society. Or you heard a story of someone in foster care. Or maybe you yourself were in foster care. And all of a sudden you were willing to change your family demographics for the sake of another person. Or you've heard stories about school systems and rather than just complaining, you said, actually, I'm just going to become a teacher and I want to be a teacher or administrator or a staff member who helps make schools really safe places for kids. For some of you, those moments led to job change. For others, it was a way of which you've spent your retirement. It's just completely different than you've ever imagined. And you find yourself with a new vocation altogether. For some, it ended up being a change in the way that you pray or how you spend your volunteer time, or what you give your money to, how you spend your generosity as a teenager. My life was broken open by my parents' divorce. This is a 16-year-old. Life just sort of unraveled. And what I didn't know was that in that brokenness, my life was also being broken open to the Lord. And he began to pour his mercy into that place. And there were all these adults that came around me during that time who cared for me, who welcomed me into their home and he told me about Jesus. And over the course of the weeks and months and years that went on, I realized, actually, I don't, I don't want to pursue a career in medicine. I, I want to be for others what those people were for me. I want to be a pastor because in the midst of my own broken life, 
somehow my life broke open to the mercy of God. And he poured himself into that place. And suddenly it led to transformation. For us as a church, New Life Church as a whole, we heard the story of single moms living in their cars in our city and broke our heart and caused us to open the dream centers and Mary's home and the women's clinic. For New Life Downtown, one of the questions that we're always asking as a congregation is what breaks our heart as a people in our city? And what are we willing or not willing to do about that? What is God calling us and equipping us to do? Maybe here you're sitting here personally like, I have never had that moment. I'm not sure. I don't know what that looks like. What do I do if I've never had that moment? I want to encourage you to just start practicing giving your life away to something. It's an easy way today after the service, stop by one of the tables and say, I don't know anything about kids ministry or production ministry. or this. I'm just going to start serving. And in the process of serving, you might find, I love this. I'm seeing needs that I didn't see before. And I'm giving myself to those. Or maybe you find and you're like, this team isn't for me. Can you help me find another one? They'll help you find one. <laughs> A way to see how there's needs around us, heartbreak around us, disappointment around us. God pours mercy into us and out of us for those moments. And all of a sudden transformation happens. I think this is maybe, if I circle back around to that beginning quote, or maybe white was onto something. Maybe disappointment does become the sort of necessary place of transformation for us. And in being broken, we get broken open to the spirit of God. And in those moments, he begins to change us in ways that we could never expect. Would you take a moment this morning, close your eyes, open up your hands. And we just want to invite the Holy Spirit into this moment. As we prepare our hearts to come to the table. Would you take a moment and just Talk to the Spirit of God. Say, Spirit, what do you want me to hear from you today? Are you reminding me it's it's okay to sit, that it's okay to feel, that it's okay to cry, that it's okay to name my emotions, that it's okay to go to counseling, that it's okay, that you're with me here? Maybe in the midst of the heartbreak, you've turned away from God and this moment is just a chance to say, okay, Jesus, help me. I want to talk to you about this. I just don't know how would you teach me. Or maybe it's a moment where you're sensing your own heartbreak being filled up with the mercy of God and God inviting you by his strength and his power into a new way of living. Let's invite the Spirit to speak to you now as we prepare to come to the table.